What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to iFanboy's Booksplode, Mind Management Volume 1 by Matt Kent. Nobody can tell ya There's only one song worth singing they may try and sell you Cause it hangs them up To see someone like you But you've got to Hey, you're listening to another edition of iFanboy's Booksplode, the podcast where we talk about one book for a long time. Uh, my name is Paul Montgomery, and joining me on this episode is Mr. Ryan Haupt. Hey, Paul. I thought we were doing Fast and Furious 6 Fuzzy Typewriter. I'm a little... Don't worry. Get I'll your notes it. together. Come on, man. You gotta be organized. All right. But... Okay. Sorry. So we're talking about, we're talking about mind, ma- magment, mind management, spelled MGMT, which gets in sort of the uh, one of my favorite phrases uh alphabet soup of the government's secret uh bureaus and what's this fictional kind of group that did the kind of menu stare at goats kind of thing uh, if you remember that movie with george clooney and ewan mcgregor doing a dodgy american accent but this is by matt kint well he wasn't doing a dodgy american accent he was doing a bad john ronson impersonation john ronson's british i thought he was supposed to be american in that movie did they make him american in the movie they might have. It's been. I, I rented it on Netflix, and and like in mind management, it was erased from my mind. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is this by Matt Kent, and shamefully, this is sort of my first real big robust experience with Matt Kent. I've seen him in little like serialized things and the goofy things DC is tossing his way, but uh, I haven't read Revolver or Three Stories. Do you have any history with Matt Kent at all? Or yes, I do. I read Super Spy. Um, I did read. Three stories, and I read. Uh, I re- I was really looking forward to Revolver when that came out, and I read that. Um, so yeah, I feel like I've read a good number of his things. I haven't read the two sister. I read the Tooth, which he which he did with Colin Bunn, right? Um, yeah, which was wacky. Yeah, that was, I, I talked to Colin Bunn about that. That was that's a really wacky idea, but um, and yeah, and I and I've really enjoyed his voice. He's it's more. I mean, he did he wrote and drew a story in that Time Warp anthology that we really liked from Vertigo recently. Um, but for the most part, he's just been a writer at DC because not, not very, you know, he's not drawn in the DC house style. Uh, he's got, he's more, he's more Lemire than um, Ivan Reese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's a pretty good example because sometimes, you know, DC and, and Vertigo and, and other places let guys like Lemire 
and Matt Kent out of the gate and let them draw stuff. And I was just talking to Connor earlier about um, uh, Lemire doing that issue of Jonah Hex. I mean, like, I can't believe that, you know, this, this, this happened and this is, it's such an unusual sort of, um, uh, some would say crude style. Some would say, I don't know, like primal kind of style. It's very, um, I, I think, I think an untrained eye would say this, like a little kid drew this. Um, but there's, but there's more going on than that. It's not just something that you would see up on a refrigerator from, a delusional but proud parent. Um, there's something more going on and something more thoughtful, um, but it's definitely not for everybody. Um, which I've which I've found to be a source of contention amongst his books because I originally uh, picked up Super Spy because I thought the art was so cool and engaging. Because mm-hmm. um, it's almost like it's I, I look at it and it's got a little bit of kind of that um, Craig Thompson like lankiness to the the lines of the characters where they're kind okay. of yeah. Um, but it, but it, uh, yeah, but I do see a lot of like Jeff Lemire in there too. He he works with a pretty heavy line in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of like in his earlier works they were monochrome, uh, so he would use like sepia tones throughout. So it would have some gradation uh, between shades and things like that. But by and large. They weren't uh, colored. And I think this this book is the first thing I've read by him that was fully colored. And I thought the color added a lot and was awesome. It's yeah, like watercolor style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, the watercolor uh, aesthetic is really nice on this. There's, you know, when you when you use watercolor, you get that, that great bleed sometimes that makes it sort of unpredictable. Um, and it's. And it's you know it's uh, it's not like a gradient. It's not as fake as that. And we no. see we see digital gradients, you know, in in books. And it's it's a mark of this is really shoddy work. And why did they do this and <laughs> do do anything else? Um, but with this, it it's you know you can't really. I mean, you can add pressure to the brush and stuff, but um, but you're going to get something that just it looks totally organic. It lo- it looks there is a handcraftedness to. Uh, real watercolor work and and that's what this is um well so it kind of reminds me so like in a movie like inception uh one of the weird things about inception is that everybody dreams in a very linear fashion with very vivid sharp everything you know Mm. and this almost felt like the opposite of that where the real world is kind of fuzzy because of the watercolor just kind of smearing out across the page in a very organic and just kind of flowing way that gives everything this fuzzy boundary as though it's in a dream which to me works really well with all these stuff about memory and just whether or not you can trust what your mind is giving you know what you can your senses is giving to your brain and vice versa and so i think it just i think it gave the book the right atmosphere for the subject matter yeah it's a it's a really good point that's it's it's a really appropriate visual style to the story being told and uh this is there's it's it's interesting there's a very appropriate foreword uh, by Damon Lindelof, uh, known for <laughs> he's sort of the Hollywood scapegoat these days, and I think he's written about that. The fact that if something goes wrong, they blame it on Damon Lindelof, um, but then if it's if something's great, it's sort of in spite of Damon Lindelof. He you know he wrote the first Star Trek movie, not Star Trek the motion picture, but J.J. Abrams Star Trek. Um, he was part of uh, Prometheus, and then of course Lost. And there are a lot of corollaries between this and Lost. Um, notably, I mean, those corollaries seem direct. Like it seemed like Matt Kent made those 
uh, nods on purpose. Like Flight 8815. I mean, there's no way you call something Flight 815 in the post-Lost era without knowing that there's going to be an association. Right. And what I like so much about this is that this reminds me of years ago when I was really excited about Lost. And before they started kind of doling out real revelations and disappointing a lot of people. Um, to this day, I haven't actually finished watching all of Lost. Wow. Um, I stopped in the last season. And I was a huge fan of Lost. I really enjoyed it. And this this story captures some of those week-to-week moments of excitement where there's a, a little bit of a puzzle and, and just like coded messages and, and some of the information that, that comes out. Like, um, was it Mulligan Rock? Mm-hmm. Um, that just feels like something out of Lost. Um, Mulligan Rock is something that uh, the then. This is getting into spoilers. Um, the mind management people um, sort of insert that phrase, Mulligan Rock, in place of um, mind management when people start scratching at the surface and realizing that mind management is a thing. And so to cover themselves, they've sort of um, put that out there as, as, a, as a replacement word so that uh, people – don't get even further, you know, into their, into their, you know, inner workings and stuff. Um, and I guess we should, we can get more into the story here. This is about, um, a woman named Meru. Um, she's actually her full name is Meru Marlowe. I believe we see her full name, which but, like much like hmm. lost, I spent a lot of this book, um, thinking about what the names might mean. Uh, cause Meru is a very interesting name, right? Yeah, there's a lot of names in here where you sort of like, wait, if I take this letter and move it around, but then and then like you kind of move on. But like you think it might be, you know, um, what's it called? Like an, uh, an anagram. Anagram. Yeah, an yeah. anagram for another word. And right. Every you're you're constantly like this is a I feel like this book is the like the book equivalent of like lumosity.com, you know, where the, you do the brain training and stuff. Uh-huh. Like I'm con I was constantly like on the tips of my toes reading this book, even though I was sitting down and like, but like trying to stay ahead of it and figure out he's trying to trick me here or I should reread this passage. So it's a really active reading experience, but, but go yeah, on with what you're saying. It definitely, it definitely is. And so like, there are books like the Harry Potter series where characters have names that clearly are intended to have meaning. The one that always struck out to me was Remus Lupin. What are the odds that a guy <laughs> named after somebody raised by wolves with the last name that is Latin for wolf would be a werewolf? Right. Shocking, I know. Right. Spoilers for Harry Potter, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> but these, these, I actually spent some time uh, looking into some of the names that I was more interested in. And even then, I felt like I was being led to something else. It wasn't like an obvious... So Meru is... Um, it's a mountain in, uh, and I knew about this mountain beforehand because I watched a documentary about the first uh, three dudes to do like one of the hardest ascents. It's it's this mountain that's shaped like a shark's fin, so it's really hard to get to the peak of it. Um, but it's also this like really important part of Hindu cosmology where it's supposed to be the seat of Brahman. Like I guess the, oh, wow. the analogy I would make would be like the um, the uh, it's kind of the Mount Olympus of Hindu mythology. Okay. Might get I might get people who correct me on that, which is fine. Also, for people correcting me, um, I think Three Story was also in color. So this is not the first Matt can't work in color. But <laughs> we're gonna get some <laughs> angry, angry emails from some monks and <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. But I, I just you know like so so you you read that and you're like okay, so it's like the seat of the all god of many faces, and you're like trying to think like, but how does that play into her character? And it's not 
it's not immediately apparent, and I, I think that that's really interesting. Um, the other character uh, is it Henry Lime? Right. I know his last Henry name is Lime. Lime, and it's spelled like the disease. And that was another one where I'm like, I'm looking up symptoms of Lyme disease, and I'm like, is there something about him being named Lyme that's significant? And there's things that he does where I'm like, ooh, is that something that somebody with Lyme disease would do? And I look it up, and I'm like, no, that's not quite it. And so I'm really, if he's doing this randomly, he's uh, he's really making me dig. Um, and I think that's a good thing because I think that means I'm engaged in the story. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, most of these things that we're doing are probably, you know, red herrings or um, or maybe they're just he's making slight nods. Like maybe maybe he knows about that, that whole Maru thing. And that's sort of in the back of his mind. But it's not like a direct, you know, parallel to the character. Or it's not, you know, like the key to unraveling the story. But it's just these are just little touchstones off to the side that um, you get in that, that very active mode of um, something weird is going on here. And, and you mentioned uh, Inception. One of the other movies that I thought about um, was that uh, it was that Robin Williams movie um, where he's, he's dead in the afterworld and they're paintings. Um, what the hell is that movie called? Let's look that up. Let's type on the show. <laughs> Painting. Why not? Heaven. Um, what dreams may come from 1998 uh, with Cuba Gooding Jr. And um, are you sure it's not more like that other Robin Williams movie, Jumanji? It's not. It's it's a little like Jumanji. There are there are big beards. Um, <laughs> there are beards and animals that, feral that interact with people. Looking, and, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little like Jumanji. Um, but no, it, and so <laughs> so the what dreams may come thing was that um, Robin Williams ends up he's he's dead and he's. He's going through heaven and, and his heaven is made up of like these paintings, um, these uh, and like he's the, the actual landscape, the texture of that world is paint. And so he's splashing around. And but part of that story is even though he's in heaven and he should be happy, um, he keeps thinking about like, are are my loved ones who are here? Are, are these real people or are they just manifestations of my subconscious? Mm. How how genuine um, is this world, how, how genuine is their affection? Because I think this story really activates, and we're only talking about the first six or seven issues are in this hardcover. Um, it's weird cause you actually, you read through a bunch of the issues and then it goes into a countdown mode three, two, one. So I don't know if that was the zero issue or what I was, cause I didn't read this in single issues. I just read this in this very lovely dark horse collection. Well, and then I read I read the first issue when it came out, and then um, realized that this is something I was going to want to dig my teeth into a little bit. So waited for this hardcover, right. and one of the it was a vignette at the end of the first issue, all about Archduke Ferdinand's assassination, right? Which I remember Josh commenting on on the show because you know, of course, um, and that wasn't in here. It wasn't okay, and so I was like, I'm I'm wondering if there might be like an ancillary collection of all those little vignettes, but then he did include some of the vignettes about the different uh, players within the mind management uh, scenario, but that was relevant to this particular arc. So it makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that stuff is, was always fascinating. And I want, and I want to go back to that. Um, But in the, in the main story, it gets really interesting. And I didn't know this was going to happen. When you look at the back cover, um, it says, who is Henry Lyme, which is sort of the, it's like uh, the uh, save the cheerleader, save the world kind of thing for this series. Who is Henry Lyme? I, I, I saw that in some of the promotional material leading up to actually reading this. And 
it's got his his picture, but then uh, his face is scratched out, like someone took mm-hmm. a pen to it, and it's this. It's sort of like he's redacted. It's been erased from your memory or from even existence. And um, so I was surprised when we actually did meet up with when Meru did catch up with Henry Lime. And you also find out in the story that Henry Lime is sort of your voice, your narrator through much of the beginning. And then once we meet Henry Lime, um, it switches voices and you get instead of a yellow narration box, you get a pink narration box for Meru. Um, so it's from her point of view. So there's some interesting things with, with voice and, and point of view happening. Um, but also the story just, I think it really kicks into high gear once you meet Henry Lime and it's sort of, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a bad writing thing. Um, they, you know, you never want your mystery story to end with a big monologue, you know, from the culprit or the parlor scene. Yeah. You don't want the parlor scene where he explains everything that happened. And that's sort of what happens here when Maru finally catches up with this guy. Um, and he's been leading her there and that's, that's also very losty sort of like, it's all about destiny and you're supposed to meet up with me and of leaving these breadcrumbs and you meet Henry Lyme and he gives you his life story and that shouldn't be good. But his, his history, his biography and the way that Matt Kent tells it is so compelling that I didn't mind. I just kind of shunted that off to the side. It reminds me, it reminds me a little bit of, um, the hatchet method for watching the Star Wars movies. Have you read about that? Yes. So it reminds me kind of like that where you're following this mystery and then once the mystery is revealed, either, you know, this is Henry Lyme or, or Vader is Luke's father, then you take an extended flashback and let's go take a step back and find out who this person is and then we'll continue with the story from the point where we left off with the reveal. Right. This is, and for anyone who's not familiar with this hatchet method thing, this is something that a guy came up with and it sort of like went around, it made the rounds on the internet that he said, don't watch, you know, Star Wars, you know, one, two, three or four, five, six. Uh, like starting there and then going back to one, two, and three, he had this this weird sort of seemingly convoluted way of watching it that actually had more dramatic impact, like you said, with... It preserves a lot of the reveals and, that the prequels would ruin if you watch those first. Right, and it's it was really smart. Everyone was like, yeah, this, there's some there's like a method to this. And it cuts madness. out episode one basically just to get rid of Jar Jar. Yeah. <laughs> and, which is fine. I mean, it works. Yeah, and so... You know, it the parlor scene shouldn't work, and it's on a it, it's the boat scene here. They're they're on the river, and it's an extended absence from the um, encroaching pearl of the immortals characters, which we'll get to. Um, but basically, telling the story of Henry. Lyme. So, so who is Henry Lyme, Ryan? That's yeah. We should get we should get to that. So proper um, nouns. <laughs> one thing one thing that I want to point out first and foremost is that having read some of Matt Kim's stuff before. I found this um, creepy as hell. Yeah. Like cre- creepy to the point of, I would almost classify this as a horror book. Um, maybe it's because I think a lot about my own brain and my mind and what that means and how I'm interpreting the world uh, because it's kind of relevant to making sure that I'm seeking truth in science and all that jazz. Um, so like the idea that there are people out there that can screw with your head and you'll never even know. And it's just this secret underbelly totally creeps me out. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was a really creepy uh, and had a lot of horrific elements to to some of this mind control stuff. I totally um, agree. So this flight A one five that we mentioned before uh, is kind of the opening of the well. There's there's an opening of the book that's actually a sequence that is explained later in the book. So I won't go into the super super specifics on that. But basically, this eight one five is a flight where everybody gets amnesia to the point where um, the pilot doesn't even know how to land the plane. 
And they manage to land the plane. And when they do, nobody gets their memory back. So they all have to live these pretty messed up lives where parents have forgotten their children and, um, you know, men have forgotten their wives and just really awful stuff. And there's one boy who doesn't lose his memory and they never quite come back to that. They kind of leave that hanging. But he doesn't lose his memory, but his parents were on the plane and they lost their memory. So he has to go live with his grandparents. And um, the it's manifest... Sort of, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when you have, you know, for, for, you know, usually older people when they have a husband or wife who, you know, has Alzheimer's or, or something like that. And it's like you're living with a stranger. And it's, it's this feeling, it's like completely unfair. Like your, your history has been taken away. And in that, like talking about a horror book, I mean, they're like talk about real world horrors. I mean, this isn't about werewolves and stuff. And there are characters called immortals in here, and there is some kind of supernatural stuff. But I mean, memory and identity being taken away from you. These are sort of like some of the modern elements of horror. Um, things with corollaries to the real world, like Alzheimer's or like identity theft, even like mm-hmm. someone taking who you are away or taking away your past, your your memories. Um, changing your dreams, um, and even just modern paranoia about, does she really like me? Does she love me? Is, is, is this real? Is this my subconscious? What is it? So it's, I think it's, it's, it's going heavily into the modern zeitgeist and right. what are we actually paranoid about? What are we really afraid yeah. of? Whether, yeah, which, which yeah. Um, I didn't think about it until we were talking about it, but this also has like a lot of eternal sunshine on the spotless mind. Oh, yeah. Um, but a little more organic, a little less tech tech mm-hmm. heavy yeah so the thing about the flight 815 that's one of the other mysteries of this flight is that the flight manifest logged a certain number of passengers when they took off uh, 121 people took off with the plane and only 120 people got off when it landed and the missing person the missing passenger was henry lime so that kind of begins this whole who is henry lime is he the, is he the in fact the key to unlocking the mystery of this amnesic flight which is where Meru comes in because she's kind of an investigative author, true crime author, and this, she wants this to be her next story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and she goes and tracks him down, gets gets swept up into sort of a, a CIA story, runs into an operative who used to be Henry Lyme's partner, or at least claims to be, and they go to Zanzibar. They're they're all it's it's you well, they know, go to the creepy Mexican village first. They do um, super creepy. So you've got this this big sort of Hollywood story, and and talking about you know, inception, um, where they, you end up in some, in some really interesting locations, whether inside the dream world or out. Um, so it's this globe trotting story. And then even before you meet up with Henry Lyme, you get those great, as you said, those sort of interstitial things at the end of each issue, the end of each chapter where you meet, um, some of the operatives, some of the people that have been brought into this mysterious mind management organization before you even have the whole picture of what mind management is. And it's a really smart device because it, it builds, Mm -hmm. um, you meet these characters and it's not just, they're not just like throwaway things and it's not just world building. Um, by the time you meet Henry Lyme and he talks about his story, you start seeing those characters recur. Like there's an ad man character who is able to put out advertisements, uh, in the newspaper and he can make people he's sort of like this like Jedi mind tricks or like um extreme power of suggestion. Um 
So he's so he, he can he can make people forget a news story by putting an ad for a mop next to it. Yeah, and and that's sort of the the really elegant way of it that it's it's not just another an, an ad for something. It's an ad for something that cleans, cleans. Or, <laughs> or gets rid of something dirty. Yeah, and and like that's it's sort of a, a heady concept, but he gives you just enough to understand like oh that's that's really cool and um it just kind of works um so there's there's that kind of character there's also there's these monks that record an objective history of the world um and have so there's this archive where they're because they're monks and because their minds cannot be tampered with um their minds are sort of impenetrable um, by outside forces they're able to keep this completely objective history or so they say of of uh, civilization, right? Um, and these are like the monks you might see just walking around a city in their orange robes, you know. Yeah, they're they're like the watchers, the observers, um, and they they live a really long time. And and this is their their complete like fixation. Their complete focus is just on watching, seeing things within with no no uh, no subjective filter. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that kind of thing. Uh, the talking dolphins we should talk about. That was like a, when that cover came up. I was like, I remember cool. you featuring that in one of the best covers. Of the yeah, in best covers. I was like, what's going on here? Like, there's something really weird about about these dolphins, and there's there's a, a little bit of like a Douglas Adams thing to it. Yep. Well, yeah. I think anytime, yeah, anytime intelligent dolphins come up in pop culture, it's hard not to you think about. You can't not think about Douglas Adams, and um, that that's that that was one of my favorites because there's this there's this girl who could sort of communicate with dolphins and it's not it's not that she knew their language she knew their she had extreme empathy i think that was the but idea. once she taught them language she was able to actually read their thoughts better because it organized the dolphins thoughts right which i thought was i thought that was really cool because it's one of those um you know if you could teach a lion to speak would you understand what it had to say sort of thing mm-hmm. and that kind of plays into this where it's like the mind of an animal is going to be so foreign in terms of its experience and its frame of reference, especially an animal that lives underwater. Uh, it's going to be so just different in the way that it processes information and has thoughts, even something very intelligent like a dolphin, which does have thoughts that you have to like teach the dolphin, the common tongue. Like this is how you can explain things to me. And once you get to that level, then the dolphins are able to form words and sentences, right, which is the, I mean the whole reason that animals don't have language in the first place, because it's not part of their evolutionary need oh i think dolphins have language it's just not an or, or like a like an alphabet alphabet okay well i'll have to think about that one or, or they don't have a written language you know yeah i mean there's a really great um there's a really great short story sci-fi short story from the 1970s and it's called like the author of the acacia seeds okay uh by ursula k Le Guin. Yeah, yeah. and it's um it's called the author of the acacia seeds and other extracts from the journal of the association of Therolinguistics. <laughs> <laughs> which is all about these science. It's basically it's like journal articles for scientists arguing about the language of ants and penguins and things like that. So like the, the ants arrange acacia seeds uh, with chemicals on them that form sentences and they argue over whether the sentences are using like first person or fourth person or what it means to say, you know, maybe like something about the queen, whether it's a threat or whether it's an exaltation. And it's just, it's brilliant. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, but okay. So like it, it cracks up to different prerogatives, different different needs, different wants, different ambitions between species, orders, phylum, whatever. Um, so, 
we're coming at it from a completely different direction in terms of right. communication. So anyway, so that and that's the great part of this book is that it opens up all these different little nodes and then we go out and, you know, whether it's something that's part of the main thrust of the story or it's just this extra little nugget, like uh, it's it's just enough to get you intrigued and to go out and do some of your own homework. Um, and that's, that's the whole, that's the whole thing about uh, the way I like to describe this book as it's, it's an active read where you're, you're interacting with it and it's not, it, not like an activity book where you're, you're coloring in things, but you're actually thinking outside of the book. <laughs> um, so that, that's, that's one of the things I, I really like about this story. Um, how about the, how about the immortals? They're kind of interesting because when we first see them, we're like, what zombies? Come on. I didn't, this isn't what I signed up for. But then there's like a. I didn't think they were zombies at all because they heal. And zombies don't heal. Right. But I mean, like, they're, I think they're clearly presented at the beginning as being sort of like, this is what zombies are. Or if there's, if, if zombies, I mean, zombies are part of, are, to, are so ingrained in like filmic and like narrative culture. Um, so when we write about zombies, we're talking about, you know, Romero zombies, we're talking about Kirkman zombies, whatever, but zombies had to come from some kind of, you know, natural source, like whatever inspired, you know, someone to first start writing about zombies. So this is not, not saying that there are actually people who could telekinetically kind of control their wounds and stuff like that. But this is sort of like, this is an example of like in folklore, people seeing big wolves and saying, Oh, werewolves. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't make that connection that you made. I kind of, I almost, I just think the, the visual of the immortals going through those towns I mean, the, the, so there's two of them. There's a, a male mortal and a female mortal. And the male one almost has more of a Frankenstein vibe going on. Okay, yeah. Because he's all, like, stitched up from his wounds. And he, he retains some of the scars from his injuries, but they don't slow him down in any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah, well, it's, no. it's, a, it's a body horror thing, right? I mean, so it, whether it's zombies or Frankenstein, mm-hmm. it's that, that uh, innate, you know, fear of decay. And the reason you know, humans are, are, I'm open, I'm opening up a whole can of worms because I'm talking to a scientist, but that, that isn't there that whole thing that like, we feel uneasy around corpses or decay. And part of that is a, an instinct about stay away from that. Um, that could happen. I, I think it's to stay away that. from that because it could have a disease that could right. kill you. But, but yeah, I mean, you could, you could, I guess you could extrapolate that into a psychological horror of decay and of um, disfigurement well, yeah, and fear, body, I mean, dis- body fear, dysmorphia. Right, fear and paranoia evolved too. Yes, they did. They did. You know, so it's not. It's not just. I mean, yeah. We're. I mean, when we see a zombie and we're afraid of that, you know, our direct thought isn't, "Oh no, you know, there could be a disease and that I shouldn't eat that." Um, there are a whole you bunch of eat things. Zombies. <laughs> you I shouldn't cannot, eat zombies. I cannot and, stress that enough. Right, do but, not eat zombie meat. So there's this this body horror thing, and then it goes into I don't know. I think the immortals are kind of Scientologists because isn't that sort of a thing? Like, I remember that your mind, that your mind can control reality, basically. That's there. I remember seeing sort of like a like an illustration from like a 
like Dianetics or something where No, I think you're right. I think some of the higher orders of Scientology you you are supposed to get the ability to control those kind of things around you. Um but I guess uh, personally the uh the Immortals did not make as much of an impression on me. Um until the the scene, the Henry Lyme flashback where you kind of see the training regimen that they go through and that certain people are more adept to become an immortal versus other types of mind management operatives. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, and, that whole that that whole issue, um, whatever number that is. But when but when you get to see Henry Lyme's training, um, that's when everything sort of comes together. And you're like, oh, wow. Like even things that you were kind of interested in before get fleshed out and get even more compelling. And for you, you know, the immortals weren't, you know, like the main attraction. But then once you find out about it, um, yeah, definitely, it becomes really, it was like, wow, there's there's a lot of thought put into that element, and it's way more interesting than I thought it was. It's it's much more um, complex. Um, so to, so to have so basically the idea is you have these these guys who are are willing to in the training wound themselves maim themselves and then they can sort of seal that up um and keep on walking um the scientology example i was thinking of was there was a drawing where a guy like was trying to hammer a nail and he hit his hand and like you do this there's sort of this like i don't know this brain training thing where you reverse it like you have to keep like pretend hammering your hand there's this this whole process and basically it it undoes the damage or at least takes the pain away. Huh. So I don't know. There's so, I mean, we mentioned uh, men who stare at goats earlier and there was a time when, and some conspiracy theorists may say there's still is going on a lot of training in that arena that the mind uh, is more powerful than mm-hmm. you know anything. And, and as a lot of people perception. know, like project MK ultra, the CIA gave operatives, uh, LSD to see if there was like any kind of unlocking the potential of the mind sort of stuff. Um, and as far as I know, all that stuff was abandoned because it's just not that, not that useful. Um, but this book kind mm-hmm. of plays on what if it was really useful and what if we kept using it and there were these powerful psychics out there that we could train to be all, I mean, just to function in all sorts of crazy ways as just unstoppable assassins or as base diplomatic lubricant. You know? <laughs> um, that's a really good phrase. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's sort of what, and that's what Henry Lyme becomes. And it's the whole idea. It's not like absolute power corrupts absolutely because it's not like Henry Lyme got like a, you know, had a power trip. He was, he, I think he was, I mean, seemingly in his narrative, it seems like he was always kind of modest about it and he's just doing his job but then it's not about him over overstepping his bounds as to what he should do with his his power of suggestion and it's and it really is jedi mind tricks where he's able to um coerce uh the outcome that he wants uh, or that his government wants um so it's it's not so much about him um going on a power trip going on an ego trip it's about the paranoia that, okay, wait, if I have all this power, am I doing things without knowing it? Am right. I am I causing my wife to love me when that really wasn't there? Um, so is is her affection genuine? Um and even even though I'm questioning it, do I have the power to to really stop that? And is it too late to see if I had any kind of involvement with that? with manipulating, 
you know, our, our, our relationship because right. we do see he's, he's extremely powerful in terms of perception in that he can convince her, even though that she's sort of aware that it's happening because she does start questioning it. Um, they're having a meal in his hut or something or a cabin. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's in the middle East with the pipeline. He's trying to right, right, basically right. coax a bunch of different warring countries into allowing giant, you know, pipelines, presumably American oil interests to be right. strung across their countries. Um, yeah. And that's the scene where he proposes to her. And it's this really beautiful scene where um, he convinces her that they're having this really nice meal and that they're underwater in this beautiful uh, tropical reef slash jungle area. And, I, I was thinking about that while while we were talking because um, it it kind of because he has this doubt that his wife really loves him or if he just made her love him and then she puts some doubt back into him saying well what if the mind management people only let me be with you because I'm immune and so that makes me wonder if those scenes where we where she's playing along with his illusions if she really couldn't see anything and was just faking it and that's the fakery not the love well that. That's a really good point. And so, so, so are you, so are you suggesting that you're suggesting that she's playing along with him? I'm, I'm saying in our discussion just now, I only realized that that might be what was happening all along was that, that she was lying to him. But the thing that she was lying to him about was that his mind powers were actually having an effect on her at all when really they weren't, which is why she really did love him, even though he had doubts. But doesn't, him. doesn't she react though? I mean, she, or at least she needs to be cognizant of the fact that he's putting those he's he's putting that signal out there no you're right i mean there's she needs there's, to yeah she, there's got to be some back and forth she has there. to be aware that this artifice is being created to be mm -hmm. able to pretend to be affected by it so she has to perceive it on some level yeah no that's a good point trippy good point. trippy stuff. i know that that's the cool thing about this book though is that it's like even what you're seeing, it's a little unclear. It's a little uncertain. And I, th and I think the fact that it, so you, you mentioned it loops back around to that opening scene um, where there's this, this mass murder, people are just killing each other in the city and what the hell um, that, you know, it's, it's a, it must be a completely different experience reading in single issues, but having read this, you know, in, in one sitting, um, that, you know, that scene was in the back of my mind pretty freshly, that that opening scene. Mm -hmm. So then to loop back to that, that also created this. It was it was a little bit jarring because now we're getting into the stuff where did I really see what I think I saw? And like, shouldn't I have registered the fact, you know, and like you're saying, like, you know, how much how much of this was out there um, and was right under my nose? And as a reader, should I have picked up on certain things? Um so that so, I so I really really appreciate um, how he parcels out information, the order he does things, and the breaks that he takes, and those interstitials to introduce the twins, the ad man, um, and we're able to as as readers compile those together and figure okay well that's that's they erased this thing, and then when you get to the point of um, uh, Hiroshima, and talking about the the guy who was going to go there. And they're like, wait, so you, 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 you caused that? And no, no, I, I didn't cause it. So you're, you're, you're in the same place as Meru. Like you have the same bits of information, you know, of the different abilities that some mm -hmm. of the operatives might have. And you're thinking, okay, well, what, what would they have done here? Or maybe, you know, what 
actually happened. You know what I actually thought when I read that? Because he was one of the immortals. I thought that he went there to see if the bomb would kill him. That's interesting. Because because I because I thought back to the um, in when Warren Ellis was writing a lot of Wildstorm books, he had this concept where you could destroy your own soul with an EMP blast. So certain superheroes or other people who didn't want their soul to be used in the game that the God and the devil were playing in the afterlife would strap themselves to a nuke and die that way. to like rob the afterlife of their soul. And I didn't know if I, I, that was where my mind went when I read that. I was like, Oh, was he going to Hiroshima to see if an an atomic bomb could take him out? There there are times where, I'm extremely jealous of, of Warren Ellis's imagination. Um, this one, I'm sort of 50-50. Like, I'm a little bit jealous that I, I don't have those kinds of ideas, but then I kind of really don't want to have to think about that stuff. You know, think about where, <laughs> you know, what, how my, you know, if I was a superhero, how my soul would be used. Um, man. Um, so what are some of the other things, some of the either sciencey things or fringy things um, that came across to you as, Man, that's a really good idea. Or well, one so there was one thing I noticed. Um, there was a page. It's page one fifty two. If okay. you have that open in front of you and you want to flip to it, um, and it's a scene where we just get this progressive close up on Henry Lime's eyes. Yes, and I noticed that he has heterochromia, which is where you have eyes that are two different colors, mm-hmm. but the eyes switch from panel to panel. What? I didn't notice that. And that really struck me. And then when I went and flipped back through the book. Um, in almost every other scene, he's wearing glasses that are completely opaque. Yeah. And that's this re- is that's, like, the- that's really subtle too. Like, I mean, it's not like he has, you know, a, a bright, really saturated green eye and a brown eye. It's a blue eye and like a hazel eye. And it's one of those where I'm like, I don't really know what it means. And I'm not sure what they're trying to portray. Is he like, is he so powerfully warping reality around him that, the person looking at him can't even tell which eye is which color, and it's just shifting back and forth with every moment, like the aurora borealis or something. Oh, or it's, just... it's it's one of those things where you want to, you want to hold it up to a mirror or something. Like, no, that actually doesn't do anything. But you know, like you want to try everything to figure right. it out. And this, it's definitely not something about like the pressure of the brush or anything like that. It's a, it's a totally different hue. You're right. It's hazel on the left, blue on the right in the top panel, and then it flips in the next one, blue on the left, hazel on the right. That's really interesting. And and there is stuff in here where so then Muru, I believe, towards the end of this, thinks she has all the information, but then um And this is a major spoiler. If if you're gonna say what I think you're about to say. Okay, we don't have to go that far. No, I mean, but it, it uh, basically the book almost this this book one, because this is an ongoing series, right? Yeah. So this book one has an almost memento like ending where you realize like, oh my god, has like is is the reason that the is the the situation we see Marilyn at the beginning of a book a function of her already having gone on this journey before and is mind is the mind management messing with her in such a way that by the end of the book she winds up in roughly the same place right which makes it really is cuz i cuz we're up to i believe issue 10 out in the real world um so the series has gone on. This isn't the, you know, the ending to it, but so it makes me very curious as to how this series works in terms of chronology, because this actually, I mean, there are a lot of, um, open threads, um, by the end of this, but it also functions. There's, you know, that whole snake eating its tail thing. Um, Oroboros. Yes. Oroboros. Yes. How do you say it? So there's, um, so there's an element of that. And so I, I'm, 
I'll be interested to see how, not just how the next issues go, but how, however many volumes this goes, how each book is structured. Um, and also the, just the different points of view, because now we've met Henry Lyme and, and he's mm-hmm. a character. Um, some of the other, some of the other, not sciencey things, but fringy things are. So they, so he came up with this great idea. Okay, so we can erase these horrible disasters or massacres, um, or botched experiments on our part by putting stuff in the newspaper. But you know, a, you know, a thoughtful reader will be like, well, not everybody reads the newspaper, and that doesn't take care of the entire world. But he also came up with this thing that it's uh, communi- uh, communicable. So there's like, so like the the artifice is kind of a virus so that it passes from person to person. So if one person maybe read this story, they could pass it along to someone who hadn't, if I understand it correctly. So there's those types of things going on. Um, there's the, the dolphin language and then freeing the dolphins. What are the dolphins up to? I hope we well, get to see more dolphins. Yeah, and I mean it's also it's also unclear if mind management is still even a unit out there, or if it's all just splintered apart and now there's just rogue agents everywhere. Because one of my favorite scenes in the book is when um, Henry Lyme is on one of those diplomatic lubricant missions, and there's another operative from another nation there who's yes. trying to do the exact same thing, and they basically just look at each other, realize that they totally can't cancel each other out, and just start talking about their kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I loved that. And you wonder if it's going to continue. I mean, as an ongoing series, it might not be able to afford to be as subtle as that and to have issues resolve um, peacefully. You know what I mean? Like, is this going to turn into, like, scanners? Or, like, are these guys going to be, like, blowing each other's heads up? Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. I mean, uh, I read a brief thing that, that said that Matt Kent plots it out about six issues at a time. Okay. Um, I, I don't know whether or not that means that he has an ending in place and he's just kind of figuring out his way to get there one chunk at a time. But I, you know, I think at least we can hope from this book that there will be nice chunks of story, six issues at a time, if that's actually how he's doing it. Yeah, it's, um, it's such a, I mean, it's such an interesting world. And I mean, like whenever you bring up the conversation, you know, what superpower would you have? I think that I think one of the most popular is flight is I would like to fly. Mine's always been like, okay, well I go with telekinesis because with telekinesis, you can do, you can pretty much duplicate all the other powers depending on, you know, how, how strong you're and how focused your telekinesis is. Right. Definitely. You know, like, you, know you could, you know, manipulate um, things on a chemical level. And I mean, you're basically um, like firestorm at that point. You know, like you can you can do chemical reaction stuff and create fire, and so you mm-hmm. have those powers, and yeah, and you could even make yourself fly and all that. And but then the you know, but none of these characters really have telekinesis. It's all more different types of telepathy, or uh, right, there's a lot of like re- there's a lot of remote viewing that happens. Um, there's some uh, predictive powers where you can see into the future a little bit enough that it's a functional ability. Um, so it's, it's interesting. They, they, he, he covers a spectrum of different kinds of things. I was, I guess the immortals have sort of a telekinetic thing in that they're actually controlling matter, um, in, of their own bodies. Yeah, we haven't, least. yeah, that's true. We have, I mean, we haven't really seen people, any of the, the operatives, uh, manipulating matter. It's just. The sniper comes mm-hmm. the closest just because he's actually firing a gun in a way that never misses sort of thing. 
Um, right. But, M- most of it is all about it's about manipulating other people or like yeah. their minds. Um, if you if you really want to zero in on it, um, and they can send out mind bursts. Um, that was kind of cool in the in the backups that there was this operative who died and he sent like everything to his wife. Mm-hmm. And did she say and uh, it crippled her? And I don't know if that meant like emotionally crippled like she was being hyperbolic or like she was physically because i don't think we pulled out to see her whole body like i didn't mm, i didn't notice if like if it actually you know the this mental burst and that sort of her her words like actually was so devastating physically that it you know it messed her up physically um right so I mean, there's, there's, I think there's still plenty of, of room to see if, you know, well, I mean, but then again, these are the, I mean, what, if you go to the classic model of, you know, whenever we've seen these kind of CIA, um, mind control kind of things, mind management stuff, um, the, uh, the visual is bending spoons, you know, so yes. will we see bending spoons um and there was there was a moment in when the in the flashback to his training where there's a group of kids sitting with spoons Mm -hmm. um so i had one question for you did you read the the blue text vertical along the side of each page was it i mean i know that there's there's stuff on the outside and it looks like so like when you first open the book and you look just look at random pages it sort of looks like oh he just left the blue guidelines from you know, an artist's page, like when you buy an original page. Um, so I didn't, you know, give it much notice if that was just a design choice, but then you, I read it like once or twice, but does, do they change? Yeah. Every single page is different. Do um, they really? Along the top. So this is something Matt Kent does. Um, so along the top, it's the same. So basically the idea is the page looks like a report filed by a mind management operative. Right. Um, he did the same thing in Revolver, where in Revolver, the bottom of every page is like the running news ticker. Yeah. And somewhere in the ticker of each and every page is the number of that page. He, he's good. <laughs> so, so all the blue text along the vertical side of the page are excerpts from the mind management field guide. What? And so it's on, chronological. The top, on the top, it, it's, so it always says on the top the same thing, right? Yeah, it's as when, when filing, filing report, report all, essential. all essential details must fall within the solid live area box. This is the border for a standard non-bleed field report. Which is basically just treating a comic page like a field report because that's what it says on comic pages that, you know, if you want it to be printed properly, it needs to be within this area. Um, but on the, the vertical text on the side are all excerpts from the mind management field guide. And so, like, in issue five, uh, you know, on the 16th page, it'll be Mind Management Field Guide 5.16. This is cool. And let's, let's read some of these. So um, I opened up to it. This is the chase scene. Well, here's the thing. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Every single one is relevant to what's happening on the page. This, Ex- and I, I found one that's extremely relevant. Okay. So this one is the chase scene up on the rooftops. Uh, Mind Management Field Guide 2.17. When in pursuit or being pursued with a partner... Always rely on mental blast to coordinate movements rather than verbal communication. Right. And so, like, when they go to China, um, it starts, like, there's a bunch about different field techniques for translating and what to do if your translator is compromised or killed and how you can use your mind techniques to infer what people are meaning, even if you can't understand the words. 
And so, like, there's just a lot of... It's just so freaking clever. Um, And then, I think it's an issue four or five. uh, Some someone breaks into the field guide reports. So it's very Lostian, right? Like, cause every once in a while a message would appear and you yeah. weren't, weren't sure if it was the original intent of the message or if you're getting something different. So in issue four, uh, definitely by issue four, someone has broken into the field guide reports and is trying to send you the reader messages. And it's, it's so creepy. Wow. I mean, and that's, that's sort of the thing with this book that, um, you know, if, if there was a failing of the book, it was maybe that I didn't know Miru that well. Um, you get you get kind of a sense of Henry Lyme because of all of the exploits and everything, but Miru is sort of it's a bit of a blank page. I mean, she she certainly she does stuff. She has a bit of a history, and that's all interesting. I don't know that I know her very well to predict choices that she'd make. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of I, I'd sort of forgive him for that because this book constantly keeps you on your toes for the reasons we've mentioned. And also because it's, and from the big revelation that we mentioned before, it's sort of, um, it's, it's a case of an unreliable narrator. So now I kind of like the fact that I don't know what Maru is going to do because this book is completely unpredictable because I, I don't know where the impulses are coming from. Um, sometimes we don't know the chronology. Uh, we don't know what's real. Um, and as you said, everything is sort of dreamlike and that comes mm-hmm. through in the visual and it comes through with a lot of the themes. So, um, just a really exciting book to read. So, um, I think, I think we can end it there. Um, this is a, this is a great book and, uh, you can, you can read my, my full review. Uh, it's the May book of the month over at ifanboy.com. And or is it? Or is it? <laughs> or did Paul just make you think it's the May book of the month? That would, that would kind of be that would be kind of a, a cool prank to just put up something else. <laughs> I'd be like, wait a minute. And then they go to their <laughs> iTunes and then like I could if I could find some way to pull the podcast from iTunes after they listen to it. <laughs> oh man. Um but no, uh if you've if you've listened to all this so far and haven't read Mind Management, uh hopefully you're 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 rushing over to Amazon and you're you're picking this up or going out to your comic shop and, and grabbing because it's a I, I wasn't planning on buying this at my comic shop. Um, I was going to grab it on Amazon later, um, but I just saw it and the wonderful work they did with it. And it was only nineteen ninety nine, So I was like, you know what? This is, this is going home with me. Um, and I'm glad that I did. So uh, Ryan, thanks for, thanks for talking some mind management to me and, and pointing out some things I totally hadn't noticed. Yeah. Likewise. This was, I, I had a really enjoyable dis- time discussing this with you. Cool. So uh, continue the conversation uh, in the comments under this podcast or, again, over at the uh, May Book of the Month um, review, which will be up um, for at least the month of May, maybe longer. <laughs> knowing Dig. knowing some of my some of my buddies. Anyway, OK, so uh, you just got to use these techniques from the field guide to convince them to get it done on time. <laughs> exactly. So I think Connor knows what the next book of the month is anyway. So uh Right. Kind of looks like the immortal character too. You gotta be careful on that guy. Yeah, and there's also kind of a Terry O'Quinn kind of a uh, kind of lock thing too. Oh yeah, because Lost was on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So uh, check out my management. And if you have any questions or comments for us, you can send that to contact at ifanboy.com. If you have any suggestions for future book explode topics, uh, send those over to me. That's Paul at ifanboy.com. Check out what Ryan has to say every Wednesday at noonish.
I've been pretty good. You've been pretty good. No, I was just saying I, that wasn't a dig. <laughs> Noonish Eastern time. So Noonish I got to get Eastern. that. I got to get that done early in my time because I'm <laughs> up in the mountains. So I, yeah. I get to work. Awesome. I actually have to go write this review that we're talking about. So, Excellent. uh, but that'll be there for you to check out. Or have you already written it? Or and you just erased it for the purpose of, to make this discussion fresh? We'll never know. Because <laughs> you're going to redo it regardless. All right. See you guys next time. Bye.